0: Welcome back, everyone, to the 182nd episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Hey, moms, I'm finally accepting that fall is really here, and I have a very happy announcement to make. Many of y'all know that I published my second bestselling book and sequel to Dial Down the Drama, Dial Up the Dream. This book picks up where dial down the drama stops, dial up the dream, make your daughter's journey to adulthood the best for both of you, picks up in junior-senior year in high school and guides you through the early 20s uh, until about mid-20s. Why? Because the brain isn't fully developed till mid-20s, and though your son or daughter may be out of the house and in college or in an apartment, it doesn't mean they are on the straight arrow towards success. When your teen turns 18 and graduates, she or he doesn't go poof and turn into a real adult. There is some real immaturity that will be evident to you in the next several years. I think moms are socialized to think you're done at 18, and that can bring you lots of confusion and sadness. I wrote Dalit the Dream because that period of time for mothers is not really addressed, and for some These can be some of the most worrisome years. So drumroll, I will launch the Dallop the Dream Book Club Plus. This is for no more than about 20 moms. Why? Because we will have weekly coaching over Zoom, and I give every single mom individual coaching. This will be an intimate group of like-minded moms. This is my first announcement, and I promise you that you will hear lots more about it. But today, we are going to talk to a very brave young mom of seven-year-old twin boys. And this young mom has over 110,000 followers on TikTok. Jackie Polk was the perfect high school student, had straight A's, played sports, was a cheerleader. But then her life crashed when addiction took over her life. Jackie Polk is an addiction awareness and recovery influencer who is five years sober from drugs and alcohol. During her addiction, Jackie experienced overdose, domestic violence, homelessness, lost the custody of her sons, and more. Today, she has turned her life around, regained custody of her kids, and uses her platform to inspire others and encourage open conversations about addiction and recovery. She shares her impactful story with over 110,000 followers across TikTok, Instagram and other social media platforms. She currently lives in Oklahoma with her husband and twin boys. So welcome Jackie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So Jackie, the first question that I ask all my guests is if you're a mom and if so, what are the ages of your kids?
1: I am a mom. I have identical twin boys that are seven years old. Wow. Yeah. You're busy. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) always.
0: All right. So you have a really important story to share with our moms today. So tell us about your addiction and recovery story.
1: Okay. So I actually have struggled with active addiction for about 15 years. Um, My addiction really started to show face when I was in high school Although my first drink of alcohol, which is what my addiction started with, was actually when I was 12 years old from my mom's liquor cabinet. In high school is whenever my addiction really started to shine, although I didn't know that's what it was at the time. It really was just like partying. Um, my friends were all partying. I, had, I was a straight-A student. I did sports every year, all year round. I was very active in all of my high school like extracurricular activities, but I liked to party. And that's what all my friends and our friends in high school were doing. So that's what I was doing. But it always turned into, I wanted to be partying more. I wanted to keep going. I wanted to drink more. I wanted to be just, always. I was always on the search for something more. And that was kind of like the indication of that there might be a problem. Although I didn't realize that until down the road. When I was 19, my father passed away suddenly and kind of tragically. And that was a lot of emotional pressure that I was not equipped, I feel like, to deal with. It was a lot to to face, and I wasn't ready for that. And so it was easier for me to kind of escape under a mask of partying or alcohol or um, just kind of getting away from that feeling because it was very uncomfortable and extremely emotional. My doctor actually prescribed me Ambien to help me sleep right after my dad died because I was really struggling. And I remember the first night that I took it and I didn't know I was supposed to go like right to sleep after I took it. And so like the effects kind of hit me and it made me feel like kind of woozy. And I remember in that moment that I felt I didn't feel the emotional pain that I was feeling previously. And I think that was a really pivotal moment for me because it it showed me that there was something that could kind of take that pain away. And so after that, I kind of got into pills. Alcohol wasn't quite doing it enough for me. So then it, it turned into pills. And then once I found opiates, it was game over for me. Those really numbed out how I was feeling. Further down my pill journey, it gets harder and harder to find. I was living in St. Louis at the time. That's where I grew up in the suburbs of St. Louis. St. Louis. And heroin was very readily available. And that was kind of like when it was started to blow up. And so I actually ended up getting hooked on heroin. And I was an IV heroin user for about a year and a half, which ripped me of everything that I knew. I mean, I quit my job. I dropped out of college. I lost ties with all my friends and family. Um, I really was homeless. I was living out of my car for a little bit. I had legal trouble. All the things that you think of when you think of getting into drugs, like that was my life. I actually had to go to a medical detox in order to safely get detoxed from the drugs. went to in and out of a bunch of rehabs, but I was never fully prepared to actually get clean, stay clean. So, um, I didn't really apply any of the things that I learned from the treatment centers. So in my thinking, my best thinking was if I get away from where I'm living and I move somewhere else, then my addiction is going to go away. And, That is not the case. Um, I ended up moving to Oklahoma, which is where I live now. I moved here with my mom to come live with my granddad when he was older. And I thought I would be healed and it would just be totally different down here. And that was not the case. I actually just switched one drug for another. I got away from the heroin and I actually got hooked on methamphetamines down here. I was still taking pills. I was still drinking a lot of alcohol. I was doing a lot of different things together, which is very scary and very not smart, (laughs) And I'm grateful to even be alive at this point. But I kind of went through this stage for honestly about four years. I was really just surviving. I wasn't really living. I wasn't. I, I was working and I was making money and living to support my habit. But I wasn't. I was just surviving, and it was it was miserable, really. So that that went on for about four years. 2014, I found out I was pregnant. I didn't actually know it was twins until about 20 weeks, which is an entirely different story. But wow. <laughs> um, Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot to that story. We've been through a lot. The three of us have been through a lot, but I was clean for my pregnancy. I was clean for the delivery and I was clean for about six months after they were born. They came prematurely. So they were in the hospital for a while right after they were born too. But I still struggled with addiction issues for about two years um, after they were born. And that is actually what led them to being removed from my care. I was living with their biological father at the time, which he was also addicted to drugs. And it was a very, very toxic, unhealthy situation. So they were removed for drug use and domestic violence. And my addiction had led me to a lot of very dark and scary and ugly and just miserable places. But this was absolutely my rock bottom. It's kind of hard to even like put into words, like the defeat I felt at this point my kids were my world. They are my world and my purpose. And, you know, I was a good mom then, and I'm a great mom now. I just was in a place that I really needed some help is, is where I was. So I took the, uh, while they were in foster care, I took the court's plan. They give you a plan when you have an open DHS case is what it was, but I took the plan and I ran with it. It took me a while to get out of the, uh, I was living with him at the time and it took me a while to get out of that place That's another story in itself. Um, But I got out of that place. I did my classes. I did all my recovery classes, my parenting classes, my domestic violence classes. The counseling that was set up through the court system was actually played such a major role in me getting better and dealing with the trauma. And my counselor played a huge role and will forever hold a place in my heart for helping me through that. So, I worked the pro- the program that they gave me and saved my life, <laughs> actually. For 21 months after my case was opened, it was closed. I had gotten clean. I stayed clean. I um, got a job. I got a house. I was becoming the healthy parent that the courts needed to see, that I needed to be, and that my kids needed me to be. And, and I did that. So my case was closed after 21 months. And that was four years ago. So I am now five years clean and sober where I'm at now. I live amazing beautiful life. I the kids are home, happy, healthy. They're amazing, they're awesome. They feel nothing but love for me. My husband is an amazing man. We have a healthy relationship which is still kind of wild to me <laughs> that I found <laughs> a healthy good relationship after all of that. But um, I run two successful businesses and I share my story. And yeah, that's that's pretty much why I share my story to, to give people the the knowledge that, you know, you can come back from wherever you are, no matter how low it is.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that in just a second. But let me go back to a couple questions. So sure. So how do you protect your sobriety now?
1: So it's a little different whenever I was first getting clean first, where I'm at now. In the beginning, I, and they say this in recovery, a lot is people, places and things. So I dropped all the people that weren't trying to get better or on the same path as me or, you know, serving a public position in my life in order to get my kids back. So I changed all the people. I changed the places. I had one friend who helped me get to a safe place. The places matter so much, especially early or early in sobriety. You can be heavily influenced by anyone around you, even, you know, at a baseball game where there's alcohol or something, you can be influenced. So I always had to be very conscious of where I was, what I was doing and how I was feeling and removing myself from that situation. If I felt that, I don't even know what to call it, but like that feeling of like anxiety, I guess, like wanting to use or starting to use, knowing that I can't. That was really important in the beginning. And then now I just talk about it. I, the more I talk about it, the more that I put it out there, number one, the more other people know to like offer me anything. And not that that would be an issue, but, but also it just helps me remember where I came from to help me remember where I don't want to go back to. Yeah, that's great. So what is the attraction of like something
0: like heroin or opiates and, or other pills? Was it for you the numbing of the painful feelings? And then did it turn more into like a physical craving or what would you say
1: oh yeah absolutely absolutely at the beginning it was a lot of people describe it as like euphoria i suppose like i'm um, just getting rid of everything around you in your world so if you're in a position where your world it feels like it's crumbling or there's just a lot of uncomfortable things going on like for me it was emotional pain then it kind of takes you away from that it's like an escape in the beginning and then when you come back from the escape, you realize by your life like that much harder, like the reality of what life really is. So it it amplifies that desire to escape more in the beginning, I think. And so Mm -hmm. it starts that way. And then at some point, it switches over to a physical necessity. And still the desire is there for your for like to get out of your reality. But at some point, your reality turns into I'm going to get sick if I don't have these Drugs. So it becomes less about the emotionalness of it. And it turns into, you know, my body needs this in order to not have these horrible withdrawals, which are absolutely unbearable. They mm. are the worst. And I wouldn't wish that even on my worst enemy. This is kind of a deep question, but how
0: does okay. shame impact addiction for you?
1: Big time. So that's actually another point I was going to touch on. It's like, When you start to retreat from your reality and like go into a different place, when you come back to it, you're not only shameful that you ran from it, but you're shameful of all the consequences of what your addiction has already done. You know, broken ties with my family, getting to the point that you're stealing or haunting stuff. The shame of, you know, when my kids were gone, like that was such an amplified emotion that just sat, it just felt like it was just sitting on top of me. Really, eventually, no matter how many drugs I did, it didn't go away shame is huge. Shame is a big one and guilt. And that's something that you work through even long after you get clean. Like I'm five years now from the worst part of my addiction. And I still have some feelings of guilt and shame come up when I think of all the things that mostly with my kids or the things that I put them through or that we went through, you know, I'm grateful that we're where we are, but even still feelings like that can come up. and, And I have to just be mindful that they're in the past. And they served a purpose long term, because it got me to where we are now. You
0: know, yeah. so how did you first start in deciding that you really wanted to influence others? And then where are you today? Because you have quite a following on TikTok.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I actually, when I started sharing, it didn't have anything to do with influence. I had no intentions of influencing anybody, really. I'm an emotional person. And I, I draw a lot of a lot of reflection from my emotions and everything that I had gone through was very emotional. I found Facebook is where I started sharing with just my friends, just sharing a little bit bits and pieces of my story. Um, And I found it, therapeutic for me to share at first. And then I only shared a little bit at first. And then I was getting so many messages from people saying, you know, thank you for talking about this. Thank you for sharing. I I was getting messages from people that were like, I'm dealing with addiction, but I could never tell anybody you saying it out loud makes it feel like not such a a horrible thing or that I'm not a horrible person gives me hope to that I can change too and get better. I got messages like that. And then the other messages I got, were from family members of addicts who were like thank you for talking about this like my loved one goes through addiction and i don't understand i don't understand why they know that they're ripping their lives apart and they're still doing the things that are destroying their lives i just don't understand and when i started to get those messages i was like there i realized there's a need for this like there's a need for someone to bridge the gap between addict and loved one or give obviously addicts hope for a better life but also bridge the gap between people who don't understand addiction. Because if you've never been through it, or you're not educated on it, it just looks like craziness from the outside. I mean, that's what it is. But there's just a lot that goes on behind it that people, if they were a little bit more educated on it, could have a little bit more compassion. And then it wouldn't be such a moral issue of addiction. And it could be they're just somebody that needs some help. So I just kept getting inspired by it people told me i was inspiring and i still don't even see myself that way but i can't ignore the messages that continue to come in and so i would share more and i would share more and i would share more and i started sharing on tiktok and instagram and like the reels and tiktoks like the short videos and then just recently i shared on facebook too in the reels and Yeah, the number of people that have latched onto my story is crazy at this point. It's like over 100,000 people is just kind of wild. I just see it as a bigger platform to share more things that are important.
0: Yeah, so there was just recently you posted a reel and you showed yourself like who you are today and then two pictures of yourself overdosing. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so that was for International Overdose Awareness Day. Both of those pictures were evenings that I overdosed on heroin. Actually, well, I think the first one was heroin, the second one was an opiate pill, but either way, it was like through IV use, which is the quickest way to overdose, really, because it gets your, to your system so quickly. I overdosed more times than that, but those two particular times I woke up to paramedics standing over me and they had shot me up with, with um, Narcan, which is like the take you back from opiate overdose. And I remember waking up and seeing them and just like totally confused about where I was or what had happened. And then like taking a look around and remembering where I was right before this happened. And I'm forever grateful that I was with people that cared enough to at least call the paramedics because there's plenty of times that people don't do that and just leave people who've overdosed to die. And that's just part of my story, you know, and and at the time it wasn't enough to stop. There was like nothing really that was enough to make me stop. And even after those overdoses, I still woke up and probably went about my evening to go get high again, which it's just insanity. But that's the power of addiction, really.
0: Well, I think 100,000 people listening to you shows you that there's a huge need out there. And I completely agree with you as taking it out of uh, bad people do drugs and good people don't, because I think... Like, we just don't know people's story. And when we know people's story, then things like addiction make sense. And I think it's really hopeful. And like your life has been spared, sounds like several times. Yeah, absolutely. And that probably makes a huge difference for you to know that.
1: Yeah, and it leaves me with like the, the thought that, there's a bigger purpose to be served. And that's what I take from my story. Like, I feel like at this point, if I had never shared more of my story, if I I never opened up about everything I went through and just put it behind me as if it never happened, it would be all of that stuff together would have just been, I don't want to say for nothing, but it's serving such a bigger purpose now. And that's just kind of the way I see it. So no matter how uncomfortable it makes me to share some of the things that I share, I know that it's important. And the other thing that I think is so big is that what you said about good people don't use drugs, bad people do, is that addiction doesn't discriminate. Like you would have looked at me in high school with straight A's and doing all the sports. I got a full ride to play softball in college. Like you wouldn't have looked at me and thought, oh, she's going to fall into drugs. And I think that's where sometimes we get lost in thinking, well, my kids or, you know, my family members would never do that because it just doesn't discriminate, you know? It doesn't even discriminate because I get messages from people across the world, which is crazy to me, but everywhere, like Australia and Sweden and the UK and South Africa and Canada, like everywhere. And it just made me realize it's, it's not like a boundary issue. It's like a human issue where everyone across the world can relate to it because it just doesn't discriminate, you know? What I think is so
0: powerful is that you basically have turned shame into service and that's the best use of our pain turn our pain and our shame into service and then that just obliterates the shame because we are helping other people I appreciate your courage thank you I mean what can moms do I think a lot of moms feel like there's nothing they can do except really
1: monitor them really closely so yeah I mean what would you say I mean, monitoring really closely is great, and I think this is going to make me somewhat of an overbearing parent in some sort of ways, but just because I know what I'm looking for. I mean, space is good for a teenager, but only so much space because they're still a teenager, you know, like giving them free reign and not checking up on their phone or what kind of conversations they're having or what kind of people they're hanging out with, just kind of trusting that they're going to be the person to either say no, or the person to not be around that type of situation is not enough. Like ask the hard questions. I know teenagers, I know, I don't have them yet, but I remember being a teenager and being just (laughs) hard to talk to, but ask the questions. I mean, they're still the kid, you know, and ask the questions and, and go through the phone. You know, I mean, there is enough privacy for kids, but also at the same time, there's just so many things out there that they could get into that they can be exposed to that you would never even know until it's too late. So having the conversations, doing the digging through the phones, my kids are not going to have social media for a long time, like (laughs) for a long time, almost to the point of overbearing because of how scary and what there really is out there. And that's my biggest thing about nowadays is it's totally different. Even than when I was growing up with social media and the amount of connection and the amount of talking and connection that you can have with anybody at any time. I think it's a great tool. Of course, it's helping me do what I'm doing, but for kids that are young, it can be too much for them to handle on their own and navigate through. And the more connection and communication with more people, it's also that much more exposure to whatever those people are into. And you just don't always know what their friends are into, no matter where they come from. How prevalent is
0: it that some parent has had surgery and they had hydrocodone to recover from surgery and kids find it?
1: So it's actually a lot more common than you would think. I mean, I don't have like the statistics on it, but I will tell you from my standpoint, even before I was heavily, heavily into drugs, I mean, I would check everybody's medicine cabinet once I was in my, in my drug stage, like, I would check all medicine cabinets. That's where people keep them. You don't think about it. If you don't think about, if you're not educated on what these drugs can do, if you're not educated on the lengths that people will go to get them, if you're not educated on the fact that one pill can spike an addiction, that starts the downward spiral of of a life, you disregard the importance of what that really means with meds just sitting in a cabinet somewhere. So I started sharing about this specific pouch that actually deactivates drugs in April, on my platform and started talking about it to my community. And I had multiple moms message me and say, I never even thought about the medications that are in my medicine cabinet from my pregnancy, from my C-section that was three or four years ago. One friend of mine, she said, I had four bottles of leftover pain pills that were just sitting in there because they were unused and leftover. And I never even thought about it. I think it's awareness of the fact that kids get curious. I think it's awareness that kids are exposed to social media and the internet that talks all about whatever they want to find If they think, hey, maybe my parents have something to try in the medicine cabinet and maybe they go. All they have to do is Google what that word says on the side of the bottle, see what it does. If people are like, oh, these are so great. These are so great. I mean, there's influence right there for them to be like, well, let's try one and see what happens. Because teens are curious. Well, Yeah. I mean, I think about myself. I was only 12 when I was like, I'm going to try my mom's liquor when she was gone. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just going to do it because I see other people doing it, you know? And we're exposed to a society where there's a lot of drug, alcohol, pill popping exposure on even you know TV shows and all that and so teenagers these days just have so much more exposure to this sort of thing that would even let them think well hey maybe I'll just try it one time have a good time or you know people say they like these so I'm gonna go do this where this is cool I'm gonna go do this right well and
0: even alcohol like so the parents who have the big liquor cabinets I mean I've been doing this 28 years this has not changed where parents are surprised that they're middle school kid, sometimes younger, goes in there and takes something and drinks and gets drunk from their cabinet. So having a lock on that cabinet would be a smart thing to do.
1: Absolutely. That's a very simple thing to do that I think a lot of parents just think they wouldn't do that or, I don't know, it's like we missed that step of protecting our kids from the opportunity to do it.
0: And I see in my practice is especially some of those middle school years when they're a little bit younger, I think parents aren't thinking that their kids would do that yet. Like maybe they think maybe they'll start that at sophomore in high school, but you can't start too early. So going back to those pouches, so Mm -hmm. how does it work and how could a parent get those pouches?
1: So the pouches are amazing. I am a huge advocate for these pouches because they're so simple. So it's just three steps. You take, there's pouches and container and you take the medicine and you put it into the pouch. You just add water to it, shake it up, and then you can toss it in the trash. So each pouch has activated carbon in it, which is going to deactivate any of your narcotic medications within seconds. You can put up to 90 pills in it. You can put, oh, wow. yeah, you can put 12 ounces of liquid or up to 12 patches, which is important for like fentanyl is a really big, big deal right now. And I know, I believe those come in patches. They're also safe for the environment. They're totally plant-based and green. So it's safe to like toss into the trash can. Like I'm a big advocate for the planet and loving the earth. And the fact that they're green and safe to go put in the trash can, it's awesome because a lot of people might think i'm going to just flush these medications down the toilet and they're gone but that actually is harmful for the environment and the groundwater and then also any the, you know wherever the water goes if there's animals or whatever it will It's still just in the water. So the pouches take that away. I love the pouches. (laughs) I love that they have them. I know that me and my active addiction would have been so angry about something like this because it would take away the leftover medications that were easy to get or easy to fall into the wrong hands with people being more aware and being like, I'm going to take those out of reach. I know it would have made me angry in my active addiction, but that's good. It starts the addiction.
0: (laughs) Yes. No, that's awesome.
1: So you can actually get the pouches off of Amazon. It's from a company called Deterra. It's D-E-T-E-R-R-A. They're on Amazon, but you can also go to DeterraSystem.com to learn a little bit more about them and even request pouches.
0: Okay, that's great. For the moms listening, what are some signs that they should be looking for?
1: (laughs) I want to say erratic behavior. I know that teenagers already have that sort of thing ingrained in them. If you're sitting there thinking my child has been acting different for the last couple weeks, last couple months, the last 3 months. I feel like as parents we have that inkling in us to like to follow and I say follow that. Like if they're acting different than they normally do, ask more questions, start digging, start finding out, start invading their privacy if you have to to figure it out because they're not going to openly tell you yes. I've been trying drugs or trying this or I've been drinking or I've been seeking out to do this or that. The different behavior would be the first thing I would recommend to look for. Different behavior, switching up friends. That was something that I did in high school a lot because, you know, some of my friends that were not into drinking and partying, I kind of drifted away from them and started hanging out with different people. That sort of sudden change or difference in lifestyle, I guess. A lack of interest in things that they were normally into. Myself, I know I, my senior year after I had been partying for three years, I guess, I ended up dropping out of cheerleading in my winter season. And then I ended up dropping out of track. On my senior year, those are two very big indicators that something's happening. And, you know, and I can't like fault my parents at this point, but looking back, it's kind of like, maybe we should ask some more questions, figure out what's going on. Because at that point, I mean, I was still under 18, you know, I'm still the child. So I would say, I know teenagers can push back, but you have to get past that boundary and make sure that you're still being the parent and not the friend. And also not trying to be the cool parent. I know growing up or in high school, there was a couple parents who were the cool parents, meaning we could go over there and have parties and drink as long as everybody stayed the night or whatever. And, you know, in high school, I was like, wow, they're so cool. That's so awesome. Now, looking back, I'm like, that's not cool. You know, Like, it's like the setup for disaster, really, in, in lots of different ways. And that just goes back to people thinking, well, my kids would never do that. It's like, well, you don't know that and giving them the platform to start that is never good. You know? right.
0: I completely agree. It's really so frustrating because I work with so many moms is that some moms are trying to do the right thing. And then there are the cool moms. Not every mom has the same viewpoint, but I completely agree with you. So if a mom suspects that their teen is using opiates or other drugs, is there anything
1: that they can say to their teens or what should they do? Well, I would definitely just ask the question outright, <laughs> to be honest with you, ask the hard questions because as a parent, you're going to know, well, you generally know whether they're lying or trying to cover something up. And if they don't expect you to ask them, they're probably going to kind of freeze up or be like, uh, uh, or they're not going to know what else to do besides give you the truth and say yes. At which case you can finding a counselor, finding somebody to talk to, trying to get somebody that can get to why, Or, you know, ask the questions of where, with who, when, especially if it's certain friends, because then that gives you more information about where you don't want them to be. Yeah. As a therapist, I would say, like taking them to a
0: professional would be the next Mm -hmm. step. Yeah. And a professional or therapist that has experience with addiction would be helpful.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: What last advice would you have for the moms listening?
1: I would say just pay that little bit extra of attention, especially in the high school age of kind of what I said earlier of just maybe feeling like you're being overbearing, but for a good purpose, for a good reason. If you feel like something's going on, then it probably is to not push back that feeling of, oh, my kid wouldn't do that. I would definitely say check your medicine cabinets. If you have if you have medicines like that, another place that you can find medicines like that are grandparents, it's a little older, because they don't think about that either. And they tend to have more prescriptions for things because that not only takes away the the reach of them for the first time of use, but it, it gets rid of them permanently so that it helps everybody get rid of them. You know, like they're just gone. They're not to be transferred over to somebody else or for somebody else to find. No, that's great practical advice.
0: And one thing that I would add for moms is to avoid the shaming factor. When I'm working with moms, I'd like to go deep. And I'm part of the thing that you want to do, moms, is hold space for who your child or your teen or your young adult really is and to not write them off as bad. They are an addiction. That's not who they are. That's not who they are. And you hold the hope and hold that space and keep loving them and just being there, and not cut them off. I mean, you have to be smart and savvy, but your kid who's using drugs, another sign, you know, is they can be nasty and real hateful, but just know that's not who they are. I feel very passionate about this. A teen's or young adult's worst mistakes does not define them. That's not who they are. And really, those mistakes over and over again this is called resiliency and you can take the worst that's been thrown at you and make a huge difference in the world and so Jackie I'm just so happy to have this conversation with you and what you're doing in the world and I hope you know your numbers double triple 10 times it because it takes a lot of courage to move out of shame and
1: tell your story and
0: turn it into service and you have
1: well thank you I'm all right, thank you. Thanks for having me on here. I'm I'm just excited to be able to shed a little light on something that is so complex and so emotionally intertwined and something that needs to be talked about more so that more people can understand. All right. Thank you. Thank you.
0: This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting, Moms Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it. If you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review... This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning, best-selling books, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com. And that has two L's and two E's.